0: hello and welcome to the verity podcast for thursday november 16th
1: 2023 the only podcast that separates the fact from the narrative spin i'm adam clark and i'm eric steiner with a look at today's top stories a ukrainian lawmaker is arrested on suspicion of russian linked terrorism israeli forces enter gaza's largest hospital Donald Trump's legal team demands a mistrial in the New York civil fraud case.
0: The World Food Program says 25% of Sudan's population
1: faces climate-exacerbated hunger. North Korea reportedly tests a new engine for its intermediate ballistic missiles. The US House passes a stopgap bill to avoid a government shutdown. Biden announces five federal judicial nominees, including the first Muslim appellate court judge.
0: Nikki Haley softens controversial comments about social media verification.
1: Mexico's first non-binary magistrate is found dead. And the UK inks a major trade pact with Florida. In our top story, a Ukrainian lawmaker is arrested on suspicion of Russia-linked treason. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters and Newsweek. A Ukrainian lawmaker was this week formally notified by authorities that he was under suspicion of treason, according to a video posted on his Telegram channel. Filmed as a member of Ukraine's Security Service, or SBU, stood behind him, Alexander Dubinsky said that a Kiev court had ordered him detained for 60 days. In a statement the same day, the SBU did not name Dubinsky, but alleged that a Ukrainian politician joined a criminal organization financed by Russian military intelligence. It further alleged that this group received an excess of $10 million from Russia and was tasked with spreading disinformation about Ukrainian political and military leadership, including claims that high-ranking Ukrainian officials were interfering in U.S. presidential elections. The two Ukrainian officials confirmed to Reuters that Dubinsky was in fact the subject of the SBU probe. Dubinsky, elected to Ukraine's parliament as a member of the ruling Servant of the People Party, led by Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, was expelled in 2021 after he was put on a U.S. sanctions list on allegations of meddling in elections. According to reports in U.S. media, Dubinsky had also worked alongside Rudy Giuliani, attorney to former President Donald Trump, in searching for allegations of corruption regarding then-presidential candidate Joe Biden in 2019. During that year, Giuliani met with both Davinsky and Andrei Drkash, a former Ukrainian politician, while filming a documentary in Kyiv. The SBU this week said that Drkash and Kostiantyn Kulik, a former Ukrainian prosecutor, have also been charged as part of the alleged criminal organization. According to reports, Drkash and Kulik are hiding outside of Ukraine. The SBU alleged the organization was formed in 2016 and that, quote, on the instructions of the Russian special services, it organized events to discredit the image of Ukraine in the international arena in order to worsen diplomatic relations with the U.S. and complicate Ukraine's accession to the European Union and NATO. Meanwhile, in the video recorded before he was taken to a detention facility, Dubinsky denied the charges against him, alleging they were, quote, based on the absolute lies of top state officials. Eric, thank you for laying out the facts on our first story today. We're going to start our first round of narrative spins
0: with a left narrative provided by Newsweek. The three Ukrainians charged by the SBU of receiving funding from Russian intelligence to carry out their subversive activities were key allies of Trump ally Rudy Giuliani. This is just further
1: evidence of the Trump campaign's collusion with Russia. The Hill gives us a right narrative. They say Rudy Giuliani had contacted these three Ukrainians to find evidence of corruption in the country on the part of then-Vice President Joe Biden and his son Hunter, then on the board of a Ukrainian energy company. Republicans are further investigating these allegations in the House. These charges smell of political persecution. And our friends at the
0: Petaculous Prediction community have an opinion on this story to end our first round of spins. They believe that there's a 90 percent chance that Donald Trump will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election.
1: Listen, those elections would have been successful if uh, Dubinsky hadn't been meddling in it and they they would have have gotten gotten away away with
0: it, too. It wasn't for the meddling meddling Dubinsky's. Ladies and gentlemen, in the
1: center ring, the (laughs) meddling (laughs) meddling (laughs) Dubinsky's. They're opening up for the Dropkick Murphys. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be be quite the circus. Yes,
0: it would. I tell you. Israeli forces enter Gaza's largest hospital. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Financial Times, the Times of Israel, BBC News, Independent, Jerusalem Post, and Al Jazeera. Israeli forces entered a Al Shifa hospital in Gaza early on Wednesday in what they characterized as a precise and targeted operation against Hamas. Only hours after the U.S. backed its claims that the militant group was using the hospital as a command center, international aid agencies expressed alarm with the head of the World Health Organization, or the WHO, describing reports of an incursion as deeply concerning. The Israeli military claimed that it found weapons in the hospital's basement after clashing with Palestinian militants. A top official at the hospital said Israeli forces were still operating inside the facility and that civilians were still present inside as well. The Israeli military said that it would provide medical assistance to patients and safe passage for civilians. On Tuesday, National Security Spokesperson John Kirby said that Israeli claims that there was a Hamas command center underneath a al-Shifa were correct, the first time the U.S. had independently backed these specific claims from Israel. U.S. President Joe Biden said that Al-Shifa Hospital must be protected, and U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak said Israel must act within international law. Meanwhile, Hamas has denied the command center claims. Meanwhile, there are reports that Qatari mediators alongside U.S. coordination, are seeking to negotiate a deal between Hamas and Israel that includes the release of some civilian hostages from Gaza in exchange for a three-day ceasefire and the release of some Palestinian women and children from Israeli jails. There has been little official information, however. In a meeting between Israeli Defense Minister Yuav Gallant and White House Coordinator for the Middle East Brett McGurk, Gallant told McGurk that Israel will not end its Gaza campaign until Hamas has been annihilated and the hostages held in the Strip are returned home. As of Wednesday afternoon, over 11,000 people in the Gaza Strip have reportedly been killed, over half of which were women and children, according to the Palestinian Ministry of Health. The official Israeli death toll, meanwhile,
1: stands at 1.2,000 people. Adam, thank you for laying out the facts. The first spin is coming from the Jerusalem Post. It is a pro-Israel narrative. Israel has presented evidence that terrorists from Hamas have placed their headquarters underneath hospitals in Gaza, specifically to use civilians at the facilities as human shields. Indeed, the U.S. has also verified that Hamas is using al-Shifa as a command center. Despite this, Israel, which has the right to defend its borders, is doing everything it can to minimize harm to the civilian population and provide aid while conducting critical military operations. Middle East Eye is going to counter
0: that with a pro-Palestine narrative. Even if Israel's claims that Hamas is using hospitals as bases of operations are valid, it has an obligation under international law to protect hospitals during armed conflict. As Israel is committing horrendous human rights violations in Gaza, the international community must step up efforts to end the assault on Palestinians and work to address a humanitarian cataclysm.
1: The nerds from Metaculus have a narrative. They say there's a 37% chance that Israel will recognize Palestine by the year 2070.
0: This uh, this statistic just hit me on the last paragraph. It's uh, 11,000 dead in Gaza and 1,200 dead in Israel. Oh. It's like the, the initial, that initial uh, uh, attack was like 1,200 people. And now since then, Israel has turned around and killed 11,000 people
1: <laughs> in Gaza. Wow.
0: When's it, I mean, when's it enough?
1: No, exactly. It's stupid. Right? I hate it. In our next story, Trump's lawyers request a mistrial in the New York fraud case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNBC, Daily Wire, CNN, CBS, and ABC News. Former President Donald Trump and his family are requesting a mistrial be declared in his New York civil case, claiming that Judge Arthur Engeron and his clerk are biased against the defendants. Trump's lawyers filed a request for a new trial on Wednesday. Attorneys for Trump and his sons Donald Jr. and Eric, the Trump organization and its top executives argued that quote the evidence of apparent and actual bias in the case is tangible and overwhelming. A 30-page filing in the Manhattan Supreme Court cites instances of Enron and his clerk demonstrating their bias against the GOP frontrunner for the 2024 US presidential nomination. Trump's team noted comments Angron made about the case and its defendants on a Wheatley School alumni page that the judge appears to run. Defense lawyers also called out his clerk, Allison Greenfield, for her allegedly, quote, unprecedented role in the trial, along with her partisan activities. The judge and his clerk are both Democrats. A spokesperson for the New York Attorney General Letitia James, also a Democrat, said that Trump's latest move is an attempt to, quote, dismiss the truth and the facts. Ngaran has signaled that he will deny the mistrial request and said that he has, quote, an unfettered right to discuss legal issues with his clerk and that she was able to make political donations during her time campaigning. The mistrial request is the latest event in the ongoing feud between Trump and Ngaran. During the trial, which began October 2nd, Trump has called the judge a, quote, fraud, while Ngaran has imposed $15,000 in fines related to gag order violations over Trump's comments on social media. Trump and his family are on trial in the $250 million civil case for allegedly misrepresenting the value of their assets to secure favorable financing. The defense's expert witness, Jason Flemons, testified Wednesday and said that Trump's financial statements that were not disclosed conformed with generally accepted accounting principles. Eric, thank you for the facts. Our first spin going to be a Democratic
0: narrative provided by the New Republic. Donald Trump and his attorneys are trying to pull out every trick in the book to avoid responsibility for the defendant's decades of fraud. In his typical bullying fashion, Trump has attacked Judge Engeron and his principal law clerk while riling up his violent MAGA base. The former president continues to obstruct justice
1: to save his business empire and avoid responsibility for his actions. Conservative brief gives us a Republican narrative. The evidence of Judge Angeron and his law clerk's overt political bias against former President Donald Trump is overwhelming, and a mistrial is necessary to redeem any semblance of fairness in a so-called justice system that has lost the public's trust. Outside of the rabid anti-Trump base that wants the former president sidelined at all costs, most Americans recognize the political witch hunt that Trump is enduring. And the nerds are going to chime in with an opinion, and they think that there's a 2% chance that on Election Day
0: 2024, Donald Trump will be a third-party candidate for the U.S. presidential election. And that's according to the Metaculous Prediction community. A recent report states that 25% of Somalia's population faces climate-exacerbated hunger. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, African News, the IRC, and the Center for Disaster Philanthropy. On Tuesday, the World Food Program, or the WFP, reported that a quarter of the Somalia population is facing, quote, crisis-level hunger or worse, with conditions exacerbated by drought and floods. The WFP estimates that 4.3 million people will be forced into starvation by the end of the year, as they have yet to recover from record-breaking drought and are now facing catastrophic flooding malnutrition levels have soared to reach their greatest height in over 10 years. During November, El Nino has significantly increased rainfall in the Horn of Africa region, causing devastating flooding that has killed at least 35 people in Kenya and Ethiopia. When citing the reasons for the sharp increase in need, WFP spokesperson Petrock Wilton said that Bombardment of climate shocks from droughts to floods will prolong the hunger crisis in Somalia. The drought killed millions of livestock and ruined countless hectares of pasture and farmlands. Now these devastating floods are crippling Somalia's ability to recover. In March, environmental conditions moved Somalia to the top of the International Rescue Committee's watch list. The committee then issued a stark warning that without intervention, mass deaths would occur especially in children. The food insecurity crisis continues to grow across the Horn of Africa. In 2022, Somalia, Ethiopia, and Kenya reported a 70% increase in food nutrition needs compared to the 2016 and 2017 reports. That increase spans more than 20 million people
1: who face dying of hunger without significant donation increases. Adam, thanks for those facts. Our round of spins begins with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Voice of America. Millions of people across the Horn of Africa are hanging on by a thread being threatened each day with death, by hunger. Climate impacts coupled with conflict and displacement are creating an untenable crisis. Not only have crops and livestock been destroyed, but Ukraine, which serves as the breadbasket of the world, has been cut off. The international community, with all of its robust capabilities, is trying the very best it can with this extraordinary set of complex challenges in the region. That's going to be followed up with an establishment-critical narrative provided by
0: Euractiv. Record low commitments from Western nations have left the global South feeling left out and betrayed as they watch residents die from preventable malnutrition and disease. The West should be ashamed of hiding behind, quote, donor fatigue this phrase being tossed around is a false claim when the truth is that committing to humanitarian aid is more about political will. Choosing not to help is a choice that pays a price in real human life.
1: Metaculous Prediction Community has a voice for this story as well. Here is their nerd narrative. It's a 50% chance that the atmospheric CO2 concentration will be at least 435.5 parts per million in the year 2030. North Korea Tests New Solid Fuel Engines for IRBMs Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Korea Herald, Bloomberg, Yonhap News Agency, Stars and Stripes, and Reuters. North Korea's Korean central news agency KCNA reported on Wednesday that static tests of a new high-thrust solid fuel engine for its intermediate ballistic missiles, or IRBM, have been successfully conducted stressing the strategic importance of solid-fuel missiles. The results were reportedly highly satisfactory for both the inaugural first-stage engine test, conducted on November 11th and for the second-stage engine on Tuesday, boosting confidence in the goal of reliably developing a new IRBM this year. The tests highlight efforts from Pyongyang to modernize its ballistic missile arsenal. Solid-fuel missiles are easier to hide and quicker to deploy and fire in comparison to liquid-fuel weapons, which North Korea almost exclusively relied on before Kim Jong-un took power. South Korea's Yonhap News Agency has speculated that Pyongyang may test-fire a solid-fuel IRBM to mark its newly assigned Missile Industry Day on November 18. Given that an IRBM has the potential to fly some 4,000 kilometers or over 2,400 miles, the U.S. territory of Guam would be within its range. This announcement coincides with a U.S.-South Korea joint air power demonstration involving an Air Force B-52 strategic bomber alongside multiple fighter jets, as well as with a four-day naval drill in the East Sea that began on Monday. Meanwhile, North Korea has welcomed Russia's Natural Resources Minister, Alexander Kozlov, reportedly to discuss matters related to economy, science, and technology. According to KCNA, he expressed his intent to foster, quote, substantial cooperation based on the agreements signed by Kim and Vladimir Putin in September. Thank you for the facts, Eric.
0: We're going to start the spins with a pro-establishment narrative provided by Military.com. This latest test confirms that Kim Jong-un is trying to strengthen his military's ability to conduct sneak attacks on Western allies, a move that must raise alarm bells all across the region. Though Pyongyang's missile program may not yet have all the technology needed to make the pinpoint targeted long-distance strikes, arms cooperation with Russia could enhance the threat of its missile and nuclear programs. The U.S., South Korea, and Japan must now prepare for how it would respond militarily.
1: Should Kim decide to attack, KCNA gives us an establishment critical narrative. The so called freedom loving West has selected a few countries to badmouth North Korea, Russia, and China, while doing exactly what it accuses them of doing. The US and UK have both sent illegal cluster bombs and depleted uranium bombs to Ukraine to drop on Russians, and Japan and South Korea are building up their military capabilities while conducting provocative exercises with the U.S. The G7 nations are bullies who only care about de-escalation when it's them calling on others to de-escalate. And the nerds of the Metaculous Prediction community think
0: that there's a 13% chance that there will be a full-scale war between North Korea and South Korea by 2050. The U.S. House passes a stopgap bill to prevent a government shutdown. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Business Insider, The New York Times, BBC News, New York Post, Roll Call, and The Hill. The U.S. House of Representatives passed Speaker Mike Johnson's, the Republican from Louisiana, his short-term clean-continuing resolution, 336-95, to on Tuesday to keep funding flowing into early next year and prevent a looming government shutdown. The required supermajority threshold was easily cleared as 209 Democrats and 127 Republicans joined to approve the legislation under special expedited procedures, overcoming the opposition of 93 Republicans, including those in the House Freedom Caucus and two Democrats who were against it. The stopgap measure now heads to the Senate where it's expected to pass later this week. Then-President Joe Biden will have to sign the bill into law before the federal government runs out of funding on Friday. Under the proposal, Congress will have to greenlight four appropriations bills dealing with agriculture, energy, housing, and transportation, as well as veterans programs until January 19th. The remaining eight spending bills, including for defense, would have to be worked out by February 2nd. Though the House has passed seven of its 12 spending bills so far, it's unclear whether the chamber can pass any of the remaining five. The agriculture bill was defeated on the floor, and both the financial services and transportation and housing and urban development bills were withdrawn before a final vote due to anticipated rejection. House Majority Whip Tom Emmer, the Republican from Minnesota, announced that no further votes on appropriation bills would be expected until November 28 following a failed procedural vote on Wednesday that blocked the consideration of legislation funding commerce, justice, science, and related agencies,
1: and a separate Iran-related bill. Adam, thanks for laying the facts out. Our round of spins will begin with a democratic narrative coming from MSNBC. As infighting within the House GOP conference intensifies even after the promotion of Speaker Mike Johnson, Democrats have had to save the day once again by rallying behind this Republican bill in a bid to prevent a disruptive government shutdown. If Johnson doesn't want to end up like his predecessor, Kevin McCarthy, he must realize that he has to be thankful to his Democratic colleagues and negotiate with them.
0: And of course, the Republicans are going to have their say, and PJ Media is going to lay it out for him. Though Speaker Mike Johnson has succeeded in his first big challenge, he simply can't rely on help from the Democrats. It's obvious that they will do nothing to help a Republican politically, even if that move would be good for the country. And McCarthy is the latest proof of that. That said, Johnson is still on his honeymoon phase with his
1: GOP colleagues and has strong conservative credentials. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They say there's a 5% chance that there will be a U.S. government shutdown before January 1st, 2024 president biden nominates five more judges including the first muslim appellate court judge here are the facts as agreed upon by abc news washington post cbs and the official website of the white house u.s president joe biden announced five more judicial nominees on wednesday adding to the more than 150 already confirmed by the senate if confirmed they would include the first muslim american circuit court judge and the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals' first openly LGBTQ judge. Adil A. Manji, a Muslim Harvard and Oxford trained lawyer, was nominated to sit on the Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit. He has written multiple amicus briefs, including one to block former President Donald Trump's travel ban on Muslim majority countries, and another to block an attempt at diverting federal funds to build a border wall. Biden nominated Nicole Berner, currently the general counsel for the services Employees International Union, to sit on the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals. If confirmed, she would become that court's first openly LGBTQ judge. Biden's nominee for the federal district court for the Northern District of Indiana, Judge Crystal Briscoe, would become that court's first ever black woman and woman of color. Alongside Briscoe, who currently sits on both the St. Joseph County Superior Court in South Bend, Indiana, and the Indiana Commercial Court, Biden has also nominated Judge Gretchen S. Lund to the same Northern District Court. Lund has been on the Elkhart County Superior Court in Goshen, Indiana, since 2015. Judge Amy Baggio, a former assistant federal public defender, is Biden's nominee for the District of Oregon. While the White House said that there are more nominations to come, the time-consuming Senate confirmation process means he may not reach the more than 230 confirmed under Trump. Eric, thank you for the facts. And as you can
0: imagine, with a story like this, we've got some politically motivated spins. We're going to start off with a Democratic narrative provided by the San Diego Union. Joe Biden has fought harder for and achieved more successful confirmations of diverse judicial nominees than any other president. He knows the importance of a judiciary representing both the ethnic backgrounds of the American people, which is why he's chosen the first Muslim, LGBTQ+, and black women for their respective courts. He's also selected public defenders and civil rights lawyers to expand the breadth of legal backgrounds of
1: America's federal judges. The Republican narrative comes from The Hill. Since promising to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court, Biden has inadvertently stained the confirmations of his entire historically diverse group of judicial nominees. Rather than Americans focusing on the Ivy League background of, say, Ketanji Brown-Jackson, they look at her as a token black woman due to the Bidens pandering during his campaign. It's important to not only select the most competent candidate, but also publicly highlight that candidate based on said competency rather than immutable characteristics. (coughs) Nikki Haley clarifies her social media name verification stance.
0: Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Fox News, CNBC, New York Post, and Business Insider. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, who is currently running for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination, has slightly walked back her proposal that social media platforms forbid anonymous posting. Haley, in a Fox News interview Tuesday, called anonymous social media posts a, quote, national security threat and said if she wins the presidency, she'll require social media platforms to verify their users and show their algorithms. But in a CNBC interview on Wednesday, Haley said she focused on anonymous foreign actors being able to post on social media rather than on Americans doing the same, even though, quote, life would be more civil if everyone was verified. Haley's initial comments were met with a backlash from her rivals for the GOP nomination. Issues surrounding social media, including a potential ban of the short video site TikTok, have become a hot topic among the
1: contenders for the Republican nomination. Adam, thanks for laying out those facts. The first spin is coming from Fox News. It's Narrative A. Haley's proposal is grossly unconstitutional. Anonymous speech is a vital piece of free speech. And some of America's greatest early heroes used pseudonyms to express their opinions without the fear of being harassed or worse. If conservatives are going to continue to stand up for their beliefs, the nation needs more free speech, not less.
0: We're going to continue the spin with a Narrative B provided by Washington Post. Haley's critics are misinterpreting her proposal in the Constitution. She's trying hard to stop foreign actors, including China and Iran, from creating multiple accounts in an effort to spread misinformation that will harm the U.S. In addition, First Amendment protection might apply to the government requiring social media verification, but private companies are free to establish their own terms of service.
1: Terrible news coming from Mexico as their first non-binary magistrate has been found dead. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, City News Ottawa, NBC, NDTV.com, Guardian, and Al Jazeera. Jesus Baina, Mexico's first openly non-binary judge, was found dead in the central state of Aguascalientes on Monday alongside another person identified by local media as the magistrate's partner, Dorian Herrera. The state prosecutor's office initially ruled the deaths as murder-suicide a hypothesis that received fierce backlash from the victim's family and friends, before changing tune and claiming that drugs may have been involved. Mexican Security Secretary Rosa Isila Rodriguez, however, stated an investigation is still pending, and it remains unclear if, quote, it was a homicide or an accident. Baena, a prominent LGBTQ figure who became a magistrate in 2022, pushed conservative boundaries further in May, becoming the country's first citizen to be granted a non-binary passport. According to Alejandro Brito, director of the LGBTQ plus rights group Letra S, Baena's gender identity and visibility on social media earned the judge, quote, many hate messages and even threats of violence and death. According to official data, at least 305 violent hate crimes, including murder and disappearances, were registered against sexual minorities in Mexico between 2019 and 2022.
0: Thank you, Eric. We're going to start these spins with a narrative A provided by City News Ottawa. Mexican authorities have a shady record of dismissing murders as crimes of passion and a pattern that risks being repeated in this tragic case. Rather than doing their due diligence, authorities initially sought to reach a quick conclusion, a move that only serves to
1: aggravate the prejudices that often fuel crimes against minorities. The Guardian gives us Narrative B. Although there's a lot of attention to Bain's death due to their gender identity, preliminary findings show no evidence of a third party at the scene, meaning the deaths could have been down to a personal matter. No theories should be thrown out, nor should any conclusions be reached until authorities who are making every effort to investigate all avenues, find out more.
0: In our final story today, the United Kingdom signs a trade pact with Florida. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Business Matters, Guardian, The Straits Times, and MSN. UK business and trade secretary Kimi Badenoch and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis signed a new trade pact on Tuesday in a move that Badenoch said will allow huge opportunities within Britain's rapidly expanding tech sector. The UK has stated that the deal will focus on fintech, artificial intelligence, and legal services. While state-level trade deals cannot reduce federal tariffs, Florida holds the U.S.'s fourth-largest GDP approximately equal to Spain. Florida is the seventh U.S. state to sign a memorandum of understanding with the U.K. Badadoc flew to Jacksonville to finalize the deal with DeSantis, who stated that the agreement would strengthen economic partnership with the U.K. Trade between the U.K. and Florida is already worth approximately $6.14 billion, while the U.K. holds similar agreements with six other states, Indiana, North Carolina, South Carolina, Oklahoma, Utah, and Washington. UK companies have created over 70,000 jobs in Florida, with total holdings of $18 billion. The UK remains in negotiations with Texas, California, Colorado, and Illinois, with Badenoch said to meet California Governor Gavin Newsom on Wednesday. In June, U.S. President Joe Biden and UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced an Atlantic declaration. However, a post-Brexit free trade agreement hasn't yet been agreed. Badenoch has claimed recent conversations
1: with U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai were very, very good. Adam, thank you for the facts. A right narrative is coming from Express UK. Through a trade deal with Florida, Badenoch and the UK has secured another Brexit win targeting high-potential sectors within an incredibly wealthy part of the U.S. The U.K.'s focus on individual state agreements, as it continues to search for a broader deal with the U.S. federal government, continues to win new opportunities for the British economy. And that right narrative
0: is going to be countered with a left narrative provided by The Guardian. The U.K. government's promised U.S. trade deal within three years of 2019 hasn't materialized, and state deals cannot provide the tariff reductions that the U.K. so desperately desires. While a deal with Florida is positive, there's slow progress
1: in achieving the real agreement that Britain is searching for across the pond. According to the meticulous Prediction community, there's a 1% chance that the U.K. will rejoin the E.U. before 2030. I hope they would get some sort of trade
0: agreement to get beans and tomato sauce on our grocery store shelves. I think that's one of the best little side. It, it so kicks butt over pork and beans. Have you ever had beans and tomato sauce? No.
1: It's, no. It's, it's what kind of beans?
0: It's like the same type of beans for pork and beans, but it's- Are those navy beans? I guess, maybe. The little bitty brown beans.
1: Uh, are na- there's navy beans and there's- uh... Come on, name all the beans
0: right now, Eric. Know. Give me all the beans. I I really don't know. Well, stop acting like a bean aficionado.
1: An expert? What, I am a- What kind of- What kind of Uh, beans are in the beans with tomato sauce? uh, Because I'm a beanologist, and you knew that going into this conversation. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Thursday, November 16th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read
0: about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team that extracts both the key facts that all the articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ.
1: Find out more at Verity.News and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Adam Clark, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast.